0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: It's my privilege to explain a little bit about this particular cohort. This is the CHQI 2014 Fellows cohort. And to put this into context, As Dr. Stobo said, we've had uh, approximately 50 funded proposals. And we've learned at CHQI each year, we've learned how to do this better. And so when the board comprised of the CEOs of the medical centers and the deans of the schools of medicine chaired by Dr. Stobo came to our office and asked how can we focus on projects that have succeeded at one campus and then spread them to the other campuses. How do we determine which of these champions have the most likelihood of success and which of the projects have the greatest likelihood of success? The operations committee and I work together to create an RFP, request for proposal, that was only open to individuals who through a rigorous peer review process had already been selected for a very competitive grant. So we already knew that we were going to have a small pool and from that small, excellent pool of champions and projects, we were gonna winnow it down and i think it was very good advice from the board not to put a limit on how many projects it could have been 10 it might have been 1 the point was was to select projects that had already demonstrated success where there already was support at least at one campus so we knew we had some of the ingredients of success but now what we want to study is how do we disseminate best practices How do we identify obstacles to spread? And how do we overcome obstacles to spread? And one of the really important pieces of the fellowship track, at least in my opinion, and you certainly heard it in my talk, is the ability to be coached, the willingness to ask questions. So we partnered with the UCSF Center for Health Professions earlier in previous cohort years to try to impart skills on leadership and change management to these PIs and fellows so that when they took on the very hard work of attempting to implement change at campuses other than their own campus where they were not known or loved, (laughs) that they would have the requisite skills to bring individuals to the table. So this is the context of uh, this particular award series. We're very, very proud that a piece of the funding, as I said, goes beyond the actual implementation of a project, but also has gone in to leadership training, and I really urge the board to continue that and perhaps expand it. I really believe that's where the future is, creating a cadre of leaders so it's no longer about any particular project. So with that background, I'm just thrilled to introduce this class and our cohort. They have all been up here before and now they're doing the really hard work And it's so important that you're all here. We thank you for your attention and for all the work you're going to do after you hear from them today to make their projects successful at your sites because they need this partnership.
2: The main aim of our project is really, broadly speaking, to improve access to specialty care, to improve the care coordination between primary care and specialists, and to improve uh, the total value of care we deliver. I'm going to give you a very quick Synopsis: so you get a feel for the intervention. And then Terry and Karen have asked us to talk about the, the barriers we're facing and to describe how we're managing that. So I'm going to skip past what usually takes up my whole talk very quickly. I hope, hope that will be all right. So I'm going to start with the familiar standard referral process, which looks like this, where the PCP submits a typically very succinct reason for referral in what accounts – it looks more like an administrative act than an act of communication between doctors – Previously on paper, now through the EHR, the PCP might write one or two words and send this thing off. Ralph Gonzalez and I uh, got excited about implementing a non-face-to-face, asynchronous e-consult system at UCSF a couple years ago and quickly realized that the the quality of the referrals we were sending were not quite there yet in order to, to broach that. So we set out first as a foundation to improve the quality of all standard referrals uh, for office visits in our medicine subspecialties. And we, we built a set of structured templates that were designed to address known deficiencies in, in referrals and care coordination. Just to briefly describe what you'll see, they they include some decision support, they describe the relevant data that should be uh, included and studies that should be performed prior to referral, they package that data together, they ask the PCP for a clear clinical question, and they ask the PCP to posit his or her expectation with regard to co-management. Then, subsequently, we turned on an e-consult option in which the PCP can elect, using that same structured referral that's now familiar, that same template, can elect to send an e-consult to a specialist for a problem that they deem to be data-oriented and not uh, in need of a physical examination to, to render some, some advice. And the specialist typically sends that back to the PCP directly. If the specialist feels it's too complex or otherwise not suited to e-consult, the specialist can elect to see the patient in the office. We have a three business day turnaround expectation and we reimburse specialists and PCPs for this work. So very quick at UCSF, we saw a decrease in overall referral rate to the specialties engaged in in the intervention. Um, about 10% of referrals on average across those specialties are now placed using eConsult. Um, we've seen a decrease in specialty care utilization and a decrease in ED utilization and cost. So, this year, beginning in, in February with UCSD, and rolling out subsequently at other campuses, we've embarked on the project of disseminating this intervention, and working with partners at those other sites to implement this process, which turns out, as you'll not be surprised, to be complicated. So I was running through the challenges that I might talk about, because that, that was our directive. So data acquisition, that was an obvious one. And we've actually had some luck here, and it's not so interesting, so we'll skip that. The, a big one, and I'm, I'm just going to put this out there because I suspect that some of you will be wondering this, and I'll welcome you to come and find me after, but what comes up a lot is ROI, what I call the ROI to whom problem, right? So, great, you reduce specialty referrals from primary care to specialty care. That's hugely disruptive, and a lot of people, depending on their perspective, have concerns about the business implications of that. There's your sort of predictable skepticism about non-face-to-face care. And the one I'm going to talk about is what I call the can't-we-just-use-e-consult problem. So you remember when I showed you that model that we began by revamping our standard referral order? And the, uh, the, the many who have seen this intervention or have talk, you know, thought hard about how they're going to do it at their own site, an early question is, could we just do the e-consult part? Why, why address the whole picture? This is to give you an idea of the of, of what we're asking, the, the monolithic task we're asking these guys to take on. This is a picture of a template. And I chose a big, ugly one to make a point. But this is a picture of a template that we use for our structural referrals. And with all respect to our esteemed guest from Epic, can you imagine showing this to a PCP, right, and saying this is now your new interface for placing a referral, right? It's It's... It's anathema. It's a really big ask. Now, in fairness to our intervention, this is all pre-populated, and in fact, there's just a couple choices for the PCP to make, and it asks for a clinical question. But it's still a tough sell, and so the question comes up as to, as to why. So when we explored the process, as I alluded to, we heard early on that this would be challenging based on our current referral uh, uh, standards. And we learned a lot about the relationship and the, the, the assumptions that specialists and PCPs had. So I want to share a couple things that we heard early on. So here's a, here's a many patients leave the first visit as a specialist very unhappy. When a patient has waited three months to see me and I say, I can't make an assessment without X and Y piece of data, you're going to need to wait and come back and see me again. It's really upsetting. And I think anyone clinical in this room has seen that from one side or the other. That's a common occurrence, is that the right data was not available on that first specialty visit. The visit turns into two visits, which takes up extra visit slots, hurts access, and is just really frustrating for a patient. So some patients referred to nephrology should have gone to urology. That's an easy one. There ought to be a solution to that. We need to be alerted via pager if a patient has a rising creatinine And uh, hematuria or proteinuria. I love this because I always tell the story. This happened to me on the same day. One group of specialists said, you don't titrate the... I'll call out the cardiologist. It was cardiologists. They said, you don't don't treat the blood pressure aggressively enough and the, the, the lipids aggressively enough, so we don't quite trust you to manage these conditions. And the endocrinologist on the same day said, I can't believe the PCP changed my medicine. So how are we to know these are completely opaque in the current care coordination dynamic so these things are surfacing in the in the effort to start to build an e-consult system these bigger picture questions and needs and problems are surfacing And they lead to this, you know, one of the conclusions they lead to is the the percentage of people, the percentage of questions I'm going to be able to answer as a specialist via e-consult, this is to a person who's just, for whom the idea is new, is going to be very small. That's a typical assumption. You talk to PCPs. And they have, this is not to generalize, there's a huge range of co-management relationships, but to put a couple of ideas out there. So sometimes people go to cardiology twice a year, and it doesn't add a lot more than what I would have been doing if I had been seeing the patient. So, and another person deemed this perennial follow-up, so this kind of a reflex to keep seeing someone. And you all know there are patients who collect specialists until they have eight or nine or ten that they see two or three or four times a year, and it's like a part-time job. And as a PCP, reading all those notes and coordinating that care is no joke. So here's a, here's a nice one. It's impossible for most patients to envision the realities of care coordination. More specialty care might not be better. The worst is when we're working at odds. So what I feel like the, the essential message I want to convey here is that the, the process of implementing this seemingly straightforward, often presumably more technological than cultural innovation of non-face-to-face care, that process, those discussions, in many ways, is an intervention that I think has had a lot of impact at UCSF. And I think it's an important core component of what we're implementing We're trying to implement elsewhere. So bringing PCPs and specialists together will inevitably unearth these kind of deficiencies, and you need a place to put them. You need a concrete where the rubber hits the road place to say, we have a solution to that problem, too. It's part of our intervention. And that's what we found to be um, powerful about these structured referrals and about addressing the entire referral process. So here's a really basic example. The structure referral for rising creatinine says, if the patient has a rapid rising creatinine, hematuria, or new, worsening proteinuria, please page Dr. Lowe. And by the way, I changed Dr. Lowe's pager, so don't page him with your nephrology questions. But... This is actually, this is of value. PCPs want to get that message. They may be uncomfortable paging an attending in nephrology and it's certainly convenient to have the pager confront you right there and have a clear directive that you should alert nephrology and they want to know. We ask, what is your care coordination expectation with this referral? And we distilled it down to just three straightforward choices. One of them says consultation only i.e. recommendations and return to primary care. So the PCP is saying, I I just need input on one question and I would like to re-own this problem. You can imagine, if that's not stated, the unfolding of follow-up visits that may occur and the amount of utilization that that is and the amount of visits that that takes up, which then hurts access for other new patients coming into the clinic. And remarkably, I think... Half of referrals that we now see going to all of our uh, medicine subspecialists elect that first option. I don't think anyone on on either side probably would have predicted that it would be that high. So we're charged with engaging PCPs, really. There are are many stakeholders in this intervention, but the PCP is, is taking on some extra work. And I think it's under a minute to place one of these referrals, but you saw it's, it it looks initially a little bit frightening, and you can you can imagine the the um, obstacles that our teams on the ground are going to run into so my first is just an ask to everyone in the room who has influence in those settings to bear this in mind, and that to take this intervention as a chance to address the larger question of primary care specialty care relationships there are some sort of core principles of how to make this relationship work, um, including listening first to PCPs about what are your experiences with primary care specialty care. Um, I think that some of these more humanizing stories and patient-centered stories are the way to get past a lot of the mistrust and, and sometimes even ill feelings or, or presumptions. Sharing some relevant data is always effective, I find. And then the biggest intervention, those may not be enough, to be honest, the biggest intervention is probably the relationship building. I felt so privileged to be talking to specialists and hearing their input about this bigger picture question of the way they interface with primary care. And so we wound up starting, a. this is an incredibly low-tech intervention, but it's perhaps been the most powerful thing. We started a series of what we call case co-management roundtable sessions, where we invite specialists from one specialty, and I'll invite all of primary care, and we talk about the bread and butter stuff that we co-manage. Not the latest and greatest in electrophysiology. It's, It's asthma, We talk about back pain. We talk about fibromyalgia with the rheumatologist. And people come away from those conferences with a couple things you would expect, some more clinical knowledge about those lower complexity problems, a better idea of when to refer, what they can do, some additional information about taking the workup and management a little bit farther, broadening their skill set. But what really happens is what Ralph Gonzalez and Bobby Barron call breaking bread. We used to do this when we all ran into each other in the stairwell. But now we're just virtual, you know, name on, on an EHR, and it's very powerful. You see specialists saying, "Oh, you're Doctor Smith," you're, and and hearing a higher level of PCP expertise than maybe was expected. There's a lot of assumptions I think that are just uh, are broken down with those person-to-person interfaces. So we're recommending that sites do do that. And I can't. Uh, I'm 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 sure I'm completely out of, I'm overtime. So. But I just want to leave with um, the general request that um, all of us take these, where where there's influence, that um, we help these teams out with making this intervention address this bigger question. Sorry, UCSF team, I'm happy to take questions.
3: Good morning. I want to thank Karen and Terry for inviting me to be here, and I want to thank CHQI for the continued support in our efforts to improve uh, our patient care in the emergency department. I also want to acknowledge my colleagues who are sitting here, who are the people who are delivering this care that I'm about to share with you all in the emergency department. So in 2006, the Institute of Medicine released three reports on the nature of emergency services across the nation, and what they pointed out was that our EDs are overcrowded, that patients are being boarded very often, they're serving their entire, they're spending their entire hospital stay in the emergency department, many patients are, being, are leaving without ever being seen, and that many of these patients are suffering because of social crises that they have that are complicating their disposition. In this report, they noted that while there's a 12% growth over this time period that they studied in population and a 26% increase in emergency department visits, 703 U.S. hospitals closed, and there was a 13% increase in hospital admissions, I'm sorry, and, there was a, uh, and uh, 91% of the hospitals reported overcrowding as a primary contributor to this problem. Now the Joint Commission also has focused on this and they found that 50% of all sentinel events occur in the emergency department and one third of them are related to overcrowding. And they also pointed out that hospital stays are impacted by how long an individual is spending in the emergency department. Left without being seen is a major issue across all emergency departments. Um, In 2003, they estimated that almost 2 million people had left emergency departments without ever being seen. And what's most important to understand is that the people who are leaving are equally as ill as the people who are staying and waiting to be seen. And this, of course, has impact on complication rates. Um, There's a 50% increase in serious complication rates when patients are coming in for an acute coronary syndrome during times of overcrowding. And I can imagine, after hearing that uh, inspiring talk this morning about EPIC, that in the future patients will be checking their smartphones to see uh, wait times in EDs, and then they can schedule their acute coronary events uh, <laughs> times of uh, shorter wait times. So this crisis, of course, reached the popular press. It was recognized. It was called the crisis in the nation in the emergency room, but this is not this was not new to those people who are delivering care in EDs. This is well known and has been longstanding and only increasing since these papers uh, were published. And in particular, there is a population that we have focused on, and this population is that of the severely mentally ill who have high substance abuse-related conditions. And in studying this carefully, we know that one of the major contributing factors in addition to their mental illness and substance use is their homeless status, their homelessness status. So if we look at California, one-fifth of the nation's homeless live in California. And this is uh, some data on San Diego. We have the third largest homeless population in the United States. And I'd like to... Bring your attention to the fact that fifty four percent of the homeless population in San Diego had used the ED at least once uh, in the past year of this of this time course, and probably multiple times, and we know multiple times in many cases now it says that three of the five UC medical centers are located uh, in metropolitan areas that have some of the state 's largest homelessness. I would imagine all five medical centers are impacted by homelessness as a major contributor to patients using the ED. And this is a not too uncommon scenario. This was actually published in the UT, uh, in the San Diego Tribune. This is a woman who had visited RED, was found by the staff trying to sleep in the waiting room. She was evaluated and triaged, sent back out into the streets. She returned hours later, again was evaluated, again was returned to the streets, and the third time she came back with a blood alcohol level of 0.35 and had an extended stay in the emergency room. This is a not-too-uncommon scenario that uh, we face. So with this in mind, in 2011 and with the funding from CHQI, we initiated what we call the Patient-Centered Recovery Program. This is uh, using the ESPRIT model. This is an evidence-based approach, uh, where we have a team of clinicians that are part of the psychiatric consultation team. They consist of a social worker and a peer counselor who is both experienced the trials of becoming sober, but is also educated in helping patients in their drug and alcohol recovery. And together with our ED partners, we have increased our screening of the of patients coming in who have. Co occurring disorders. We use motivational interviewing. It's an evidence based brief intervention which helps people contemplate change in their life. And then referral to appropriate treatment. And I want to be clear that this is not simply discharging patients back out into the community, but rather finding the right place for these individuals. And then continued follow up to make sure that they've been able to follow through. So we instituted this over a two year period. And what I'd like to show you here is that uh, if you look at the third column, during that same two-year period, there was a 31% increase in consults seen. So not surprisingly, with each year, we have more patients coming in using ED services, yet we were able to have a 12% decrease in length of stay. Now, this number may sound somewhat trivial, but let me convert that to something that's tangible. If we look at that number, that amounts to 1,000 new patients patients that can be seen in the ED over the course of a year. We also had a 15% decrease in recidivism. Now, since we're supposed to address obstacles, let me share with you one of these obstacles. So when our psychiatric consult team and our patient care review team, uh, recovery team is called, we often find that it's important to place patients in a step-down level of care, like a crisis house, which is what we have in San Diego County. And about a third of the patients we see, we deem are appropriate for this level of care, but only a third of the time is that care actually available for them. When we actually place those patients into a crisis house site, they did not return to the ED for up 80% of them did not return to the ED for up to six months. So, with this data in hand, we approached our senior management team at UCSD, and Karen Mitchell spearheads this project. And uh, through their uh, support, we have uh, initiated the ED Community Placement Project. We looked and pre-identified 215 of the highest ED users. And some of these folks, mind you, which is not uncommon across our sites, are coming into the ED on a several times a week basis. We are the primary care center for these individuals and the social service center for these individuals. So we identified folks who had a lot of these high-risk factors, homelessness, co-occurring disorders, they were underinsured, and then we contracted with community partners. These were partners that could provide the appropriate service and who, as part of their mission, were invested in integration back into the community, a rapid turnaround, and had linked people with the appropriate case management services. So as you can see, we looked at a six-month period. That's the data I'm reporting to you here. And where it says ED and clinic visits, prior to the initiation of this program, that 215, we had been able, we saw 148 of them again afterwards. We saw a 76% decrease in ED and clinic visits and 80% decrease in hospital admission days. So finding the right place for the, for the person can contribute to a decrease in overusage of the emergency room. Now, finances are important. Um, You can see our overall return on investment was 3.8. We can project an annual savings to the one institution for about $300,000 with this program. But there's many ways to measure success. So this is the case of Karen. And Karen was a frequent visitor to the emergency department, often coming in intoxicated, depressed, sometimes suicidal. We worked with her repeatedly through our patient recovery program, bringing her to a place where she was more receptive to recovery and rehabilitation. And then Karen Mitchell worked with her extensively to find the right place for her. And as Karen tells you here in her testimonial, I was living on the streets and pregnant, suffering from epilepsy. I was placed into a community service from the ER, linked with a high-risk OB doctor, and delivered my baby I was picked up by a program which helped me get my own apartment. Now I'm in recovery. I've been clean and sober for more than a year. The ED Community Placement Project saved my life. So, again, with support from CHQI, we're now in the process of bringing this program to the other campuses. Additionally, this has been a springboard for us. This is part of what we now deliver, the quality of care that we deliver at UCSD, and we're expanding this program. We're looking at new innovative ways. I've been talking with Nat about uh, considering e consults, telehealth options, looking at a transition clinic so that we do not have to, we can follow people on a temporary basis and then transition them to the appropriate medical provider and social service agency rather than having them come to the ED. So, with that, I hope that in a couple of years we can come back and report the success across the entire uh, UC uh, institution. Thank you.
4: Hi, I'm Eliza Tong from UC Davis. Let's start with a little stretch. Who knows the answer to this, or has heard this question or a statement from before? One of the best things you can do for your patient is to help them quit smoking. Some of you can just stretch. (laughs) Great. Okay, well, you know, it's totally true. Uh, Tobacco is the number one uh, preventable cause of death, disease, and disability. Uh, and we're not just talking cancer deaths. Lot, over half of the deaths are cardiovascular. And in terms of diseases, it's not just things like COPD. It's, um, did you know that it's, uh, smoking uh, can cause and worsen diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, it worsens surgical healing. Uh, And it also increases the metabolism of pain and psychiatric medicine, so it's no wonder that uh, over half of the cigarettes consumed in the U.S. are people with behavioral health issues. So you you name anything, I think tobacco pretty much covers it. Now, in terms of what we're doing here, uh, UC is actually already taking a lead on a systems-wide change. Uh, How many of you knew already that we have a UC-wide smoke- and tobacco-free policy? Yes? Great. And, and it's medical campuses took the lead, but uh, as of January 1st, it's all campus properties. so undergrad campuses, Berkeley, et cetera. Uh, and that has been a tremendous change. Um, and, for example, we've got a lot of recognition for including e-cigarettes in that, too. So it's a natural transition now that we take the lead on uh, establishing a UC-wide tobacco cessation network and scaling up um, already the expertise that we have um, within UC. I have no disclosures and I just want to acknowledge my wonderful team um, who are part of this UC network. Uh, This is just a snapshot of the kind of folks that we have. It's multidisciplinary. We have inpatient and outpatient champions because we recognize there's different workflows. Uh, we have people from internal medicine, family medicine, psychiatry. Uh, and then we have UC-wide folks, too. Uh, so we have Linda Sarna, um, who's a professor in the School of Nursing, as our UC-wide nurse champion. We recognize nursing is so important to engage with this. We have a UC-wide pediatrics champion. And then we also have other partners, the California Smokers Helpline, which has been around for 20 years but at UCSD uh, and been one of the leading um, forces in developing and establishing best practices for quitline but i think it's one of the best kept secrets out there and we also have the smoking cessation leadership center which has been around for ten years and led by the legendary steve schroeder so here's our vision for the uc tobacco cessation network Um, as you saw from our logo in the beginning it's every smoker every encounter Uh, and why is that Um, it's because that smoking is really, it's one of the hardest things to do is to quit. Um, It's, you know, it's addictive as heroin and some of those harder drugs, quote. uh, And it can take up to 12 times for someone to really quit for good. So we need to be there as health professionals to really help support them in that uh, uh, effort. And so what we're trying to do here um, is to address it um, with all providers. And we know that brief advice from providers can uh, almost double the chances of someone trying to make that quit attempt. We're not even talking medications here. Just you being that um, uh, that support. Now, you might ask yourself, we're in California. Where's the smoking problem? You can't smoke anywhere. Well, <laughs> you know, we've had success in smoke-free policies. We need much more attention focused on, uh, on tobacco cessation. Uh, and did you know that there's still 3.6 million smokers in California out there? That translates to $18 billion in healthcare costs. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. At UC, um, some of our estimates of how many smokers we see annually, it's over 125,000 annually. Um, and that's a low ball estimate because we do a lot of underserved work. So, how are we going to get there? Our aims are building capacity through this network, creating technological modifications to each UC EMR. Um, e-referral to the free California Smokers Helpline at UCSD and using the Joint Commission's revised tobacco measure as a framework. And we know we need people power. We're going to conduct outreach and education across departments and nursing staff. We also recognize that we need to evaluate performance as well and refine our return on investment. So what is it that we're scaling up to start off with at UC Davis? Uh, We established the first two-way e-referral in the state uh, and connecting to the California Smokers Helpline at UCSD. the helpline is a tremendous resource. It, it um, it's already uh, has a scale of capacity. They uh, they have 40,000 individual encounters annually, uh, and it's a free resource. Um, they have language lines. They have special free nicotine patch offers. But what they really have um, is the power to help double the smoker's chances of long-term quitting just with the counseling alone. And the way they do that is because they have. They're counselors um, who can do 30 minutes of counseling and do up to five relapse prevention calls. And now there's been a recent study where they show that if you ask, advise, connect um, through the EMR, that proactive call uh, by a quitline to your smoker can increase um, by 13-fold their uh, their likelihood of enrolling in counseling. So what did we do at UC Davis? After one year of having this e-referral go live, um, what that referral is, we enter an order into EPIC. Uh, and the helpline calls the patient, uh, and then the helpline also sends us a results message back, the same way as, like, the lab results interface. And this has been, I think, a tremendous closed uh, feedback loop. The way that you used to refer people to the helpline was, if you see in the upper right-hand corner, was that gold wallet card saying, please call the 1-800 number. And it was great when people wanted to get free credit card offers, but now we know this is the new thing. We need to innovate with what we have. And we've had... uh, and this. Order is available in outpatient and also inpatient discharge, and I should also mention ER discharge, too. So it's across the whole health system. And we've had, to date, over 440 e-referrals, um, and when you boil it down to it, about uh, 30% of them have engaged in counseling from a, of those referred. And we know we can do better, because we haven't done the big outreach push just yet. So our timeline. Uh, in year one is to help the other four campuses uh, build this two-way e-referral and with collaboration we've shared technical documentation um, and we're working with Irvine even though it has a different system about how to um, use HL7 to uh, to do similar activity. And then year two we're looking to also uh, help build that decision support order sets or alerts um, to improve uh, people's workflow and and efficiency. Our outreach uh, uh, aim, year one, we're targeting um, a lot of the primary care folks, internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, and nursing. Uh, and year two, uh, surgery, psychiatry, ob emergency medicine. We also know there are other health professionals we need to engage too. For example, pharmacists. Did you know this? The pharmacists are now, uh, as of this year, having the uh, the capacity to prescribe smoking cessation medications. Um, and we know we need to engage respiratory therapists as well. So it's all hands on deck. Some of the barriers and. Uh, As you may well know, every UC site is a little different. Um, IT has lots of competing priorities. Uh, There are differences in the structure of inpatient, and outpatient, workflow, processes, et cetera. But we're overcoming these barriers by this network. Uh, We had a great uh, first in-person team meeting yesterday. We're sharing expertise and resources. Uh, The the picture on the left-hand side um, is our EMR medical director, Hian Nguyen, and then Willie Bancy from the integrations team. Um, He was the project manager for our e-referral. They have been tremendous in terms of sharing technical documentation on the build, um, where it's been an aha moment for the other IT teams, how how, uh, feasible it really is to do this project. Um, And they've also shared technical assistance as well. Uh, We've also been very fortunate to have other partners who um, are sharing in resources too, so the helpline in connecting everyone is is doing this pro bono for us. Uh, This this is also generating interest at the state and national level too. Um, So the state tobacco program is hoping to help supplement our project to include inpatient nurse champions um, with CDC funding. Uh, also, the North American Quitline Consortium is very interested in scaling this e-referral up um, as much as we can. And we're also leveraging related projects, too. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned before, there are fr- uh, free offers that the helpline will mail, um, free nicotine patches that the helpline can mail to directly to patients. And we know that just cuts through one more barrier of transportation. Uh, and so I'm the outreach PI for a Medi-Cal Incentives to Quit Smoking project where we're trying statewide to engage Medi-Cal members um, in this free resource. Um, they also have a, an additional incentive for $20 gift cards. And this is a, um, this is a, a almost $10 million CMS grant um, where we're trying to uh, do more preventive work. Also, there's um, a First Five Project First Five, um, California is uh, working with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Helpline to also provide free nicotine patches to parents of kids 0 to 5 and also pregnant smokers with the MD's permission. And we know that for pediatricians it's a big barrier to also prescribe medications for parents. And there's also, um, for those using the Asian language lines, um, free patches too. So bottom line, this is the right time, right place, um, to really harness everything coming together. Meaningful use really helped kickstart this because uh, tobacco status and documentation of that was a core measure. And now that it's a core measure, what do we do with that information? That's the next step. Um, This also, the e-referral can also help address, um, uh, we're investigating if it also helps with uh, uh, meaningful uses requirement about developing external referrals because even though we are UC, this is still outside of um, each UC institution. Uh, The Joint Commission's revised tobacco measure, um, it's not just for heart failure, heart attacks, and pneumonia anymore, it's for every smoker now. Uh, this has become a national. Uh, the National Quality Forum adopted this, and CMS incentives are anticipated. And as Dr. Stobo mentioned before, um, UC Care is is live now, and we know that this can be a very important way to reach out um, for our employees and save costs as well. Um, a smoker costs, on average, at least two to three thousand dollars more than a non-smoker does. So thank you very much. Um, I just want you to remember um, what I said in the beginning. It's one of the best things you can do for your patients is to help them to quit. We have a very ambitious project, but this is just the beginning. Um, And as we roll out our outreach um, in the summer, I hope all of you will help engage us on this. And we know this is something that we do that can improve efficiency, improve patient care, improve quality, improve outcomes, and it will improve return on investment. Thank you. Good morning.
0: My name is Lorraine Ward, and I'm with the UCSF Medical Center Performance Excellence Department, stepping in, unfortunately, for Dr. Bozick, who's at a meeting with CMS in Baltimore today. So, our only disclosures are that we're supported by CHQI, of course, and the California Healthcare Foundation. What is bundled payment? A lot of you have probably heard that term being thrown around. Well, let's start with where it starts, and that's what's the premise of our healthcare system. How we pay for health care directly affects how we deliver health care. I think most of us would understand that. Well, how does our current payment system deliver health care? It incentivizes more health care, more intense health care, and not really outcomes. There's really no check in our current healthcare payment system to pay for outcomes. Bundled payment turns that equation on its head and says, "We care more about the ends we want the system to achieve certain outcomes for episodes of care, and we don't really care how you achieve them or who does it, so to get to there, we're going to pay an institution and all the providers involved in a discrete episode a fixed fee. You can split that money amongst the different providers involved in that care however you want as long as it delivers the outcomes that the system is looking for. It's a new way to look at value in health care and incentivize care coordination in a way that's hard under our current fee-for-service system. So this is a map of the over 400 health systems and medical centers across the country that are participating in a new Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation uh, pilot project in bundled payments. In 2011, Medicare announced this initiative as part of the Affordable Care Act and Um, There are opportunities to participate in 48 different episodes. We started this initiative at that same time in 2011, and in lightning speed by Medicare terms, kicked off in 2014. Um, And Medicare offered a couple different models, trying to understand where the opportunity lies to both achieve better outcomes and cost savings throughout the continuum of care. So what does that mean? First, they said you can look at a short episode spanning from the inpatient stay for a discrete clinical episode such as total joint arthroplasty, which is the one that UCSF is participating in, through to 30 days post-discharge, and we'll pay you a fixed fee for that inpatient stay, all the services that are delivered during that time, and for any readmissions that occur at any facility in the next 30 days post-discharge. Other models that Medicare offered were much broader, spanning from the inpatient stay up to 90 days post-discharge, including all post-acute services such as SNF care, home health, as well as outpatient. We decided that given that our patients come from quite far distances and we don't have that network with our post-acute partners yet, that we'd stick for the narrow model for now. But as Terry showed in her opening slides, Medicare is not the only one who's interested in bundled payment. Multiple private self-insured companies, um, as well as other private payers, have engaged in bundled payment. And what does this look like for the patient? The patient is flown all expenses paid with a family member to one of these centers for excellence, such as the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo, or Virginia Mason, and all of their care is taken care of, including the post-acute period. But for these centers to be able to go to market with this kind of program, they need a thorough understanding of their current care processes and costs. Here you can view the number of private payers across the country who are starting to look at bundled payments, and mostly these bundled payment initiatives tend to be in the high volume, high variability clinical areas such as orthopedic surgery, cardiovascular surgery, and spine surgery. So what does it take to implement bundled payments? Just nine easy steps, I promise. So... First, you have to identify the clinical condition. We recommend one that's high volume with variable cost and quality outcomes, a relatively homogeneous patient population, which might be hard to do at a lot of our UC medical centers, and one that already has existing cost and quality measurement tools. You want to identify your clinical and administrative champions. So here you see Dr. Bozik and our chief operating officer, Ken Jones, without them leading from the top and encouraging all the people beneath them to collaborate in a brand new way, this would not have been possible. You need to define the episode, and this is crucial. As I talked about, Medicare has offered different models of bundled payment, and as different organizations look to implement this, it becomes a very clear risk reward trade off, both in terms of cost and clinical outcomes. The longer your episode, the wider its breadth, the more opportunity you have to really hit on those drivers of a readmission, a clinical complication, as well as cost. However, with that opportunity comes obviously risk and potential downsides. To do this, you need a very clear set of performance metrics and a gain-sharing model. What does that mean? You need to be able to understand how each part of the care continuum contributes to the overall desired outcomes, how much do they cost, and how do you hold people accountable? And once that's set up, you can determine how the gains, if any, are shared across the spectrum. Then comes the mapping. Now, this is an example of one of our uh, clinical care maps, which looked at in very significant detail the entire process that a typical total joint arthroplasty patient would go through from the initial outpatient visit and scheduling of surgery through their six-month post-op follow-up. And it shows in quite a bit of detail Who does what? Where's the variation? How much time is it taking? And this really helped to form the foundation for the next step, which is identifying opportunities for improvement. Without this kind of understanding of our current state, it's hard to identify what's gonna get you the biggest bang for the buck, obviously both financially, but in terms of clinical outcomes as well. And this also helped set up a discussion across the care continuum of providers in terms of where are we not implementing evidence-based practices, Or how can we arrive at a consensus for certain parts of the care so that we can reliably go to market with with a guaranteed set of outcomes and at a guaranteed price? We at UCSF Medical Center have used the lean methodology to help redesign some of our clinical care as well as our back-end operational processes to support bundled payment. Without understanding thoroughly your current state and cutting all the waste out of it, it's impossible in terms of the risk profile to move forward with bundled payment. And finally, you go forward with setting a price and marketing your episode. And as I mentioned earlier, there is strong interest both by commercial payers as well as the public payers in this initiative. So, as I mentioned, one of the crucial steps that this initiative has helped us do is understand what happens today and how can we make things better. As you probably know, claims processing is very complicated, even in our fee-for-service system. If you layer on bundled payments as a carve-out within our current systems, it becomes even more complicated. However, if we don't do it right, especially as part of a Medicare initiative, we won't get paid. So we've done a lot of work mapping in quite a bit of detail where each step has to happen to ensure that we're complying with all of the regulatory requirements, as well as being able to capture meaningful data throughout the spectrum. And here again, you have one of our clinical care processes. Doing something like this helped to identify variations in how our providers practice. For example, it turned out that some of the surgeons were using a hip block, nerve block, prior to surgery for primary hips. Some were not. They seemed to really not know that that was that variation in practice. But if you look across the entire care continuum, that's significant additional cost for that hip block and the anesthesia team that has to perform it. And on the outcome side, there was actually no real difference in outcomes for patients who got a hip nerve block prior to surgery versus those who didn't. So after this was identified to the surgeons, they decided, actually, that doesn't make sense, and we're going to eliminate that. So multiple opportunities such as those, both on the clinical side and the operational side, have arisen through this process. When we started this initiative, we had six different departments across UCSF collaborating, and we thought that was quite revolutionary, people who don't usually sit across the table from each other, surgeons, anesthesiologists, contracting, quality. But as the, as the initiative began to operationalize and the go-live date of January 1st, 2014 drew closer, we ended up with actually 15 different departments involved because as we started understanding more about the process and where the opportunities lay, we learned that so many different departments touch the patient throughout their care and afterwards in terms of collecting data about their experience, understanding where the costs are, how the bills are processed. So we hope we won't grow the team much more, but you never know. So how have we done so far? As of the end of April, we have seen 81 bundle payment patients discharged from UCSF across four arthroplasty DRGs. Most of the patients have been primary hips and knees and compared to our 7.7 percent readmission rate for Medicare patients in the last year for this population we've so far only recorded a 2.5 percent readmission rate which if the data holds uh, which would be very exciting. But where are the pitfalls? Obviously transforming culture is very difficult and getting all the people who need to change at the table has been a struggle. Looking at data and process redesign in a new way is still something that we're working on. And even speaking of data, some of the data we'd like to have or want to track on a regular basis isn't available in our current systems and requires a lot of manual manipulation. Now, this is sustainable for a pretty small population that we're looking at for this pilot project, but not necessarily if we think larger scale. Another big element of the risk in Bundle payment is what happens in the post-discharge setting. We currently have very little visibility into that, and in terms of both opportunity for clinical improvement and cost savings, that's where a lot of it lies. And we're, look- we're looking at different ways to improve our visibility into that, including partnering with our population health team, which now does four follow-up phone calls on a weekly basis for the 30 days post-discharge, so we can better understand patients' issues after they've left our doors, and how we can intervene earlier to prevent readmissions. So in terms of the CHQI scale-up grant, our goals were to, one, take the lessons learned from UCSF and use that as a basis for standardized metrics and processes across the UC systems for campuses that are interested in implementing bundled payment. And to Terry's point mentioned earlier, if the UC system wants to compete in this market, we need to have a standard way to do this across the entirety of the UC system. Here are our partners across the different sites that we're working with at UC San Diego and UC Irvine. We look forward to hosting them at UCSF later this month to kick it off. And then we'll run a series of learning webinars, as well as our team visiting their sites to do some hands-on training. And we hope that by the fall, we'll have a plan for taking this forward across the UCs and to engage the UC campuses that are currently not participating. In terms of our barriers to sustainability, obviously the first one is involving the multidisciplinary teams across the different UC campuses. That can be a hard sell at first. The second is developing standard tracking and reporting systems across the UC system so that we can actually measure our performance, share best practices, and go to market. And finally is the last part. We're all special. Each campus has unique needs that need to be taken into account. So how can we adapt the right parts of the UCSF model to other campuses while taking account their special needs. Thank you very much.
1: Do we have uh, a question for each one of our pre- presenters? Just briefly, how, do you, how are we paying for all this and what's Matt,
4: the financial model? Okay. Um,
2: a couple key points. First, UCSF pays for the clinical services piece of the e-consult, so they're paying the e-consultant, the specialist, with Disrupt funding. And importantly, all of the partner sites that signed on to do this dissemination project, actually the medical centers or medical groups themselves put up the funding and said, we will, we will provide this funding to implement this program. Um, CHQI funding goes only to support the people on the ground, the teams on the ground, doing the implementation work. So it's really a partnership. Um, the next thing I want to uh, say is that we're, we've already shown a decrease in, um, in total cost of care for specific insurance-based subpopulations, and we're optimistic uh, about uh, within the next, I'll say, six months, having nailed down payer relationships where uh, we are, they're able to sustain um, the payment for the e-consult, because we have a very strong value proposition for them at this point, and we hope that that emerges from the other sites as well. UC Office of the President negotiates several contracts for the UC statewide, and we're hoping to provide evidence from all the sites to create a sustainable relationship with payers. Importantly, to the other piece of your question, uh, when you reduce referrals, standard office referrals from our internal primary care population to our subspecialty practices. They don't see less patients in the end. They see actually a few more patients, and importantly, the new patient visits are coming increasingly from outside of UCSF, so it's synergistic in that we're, we're taking care of our internal population as efficiently as possible, and we're also opening up the doors to increasing
3: referrals from outside. Is this on? Yes. So. Th- that's an excellent question, and I want to clarify that we are not suggesting that we become the social service agent for the uh, for the state. Uh, but as in addition to what I showed you in one of our slides about a return on investment, there's a number of ways to uh, evaluate value added. Uh, we one of the things slides I wasn't able to show because of time constraints was that our patient satisfaction scores have increased considerably uh, in the emergency department. Our morale among staff has increased considerably because now they feel like they have a place where they can send patients and provide them with appropriate care. And of course, if we can take a patient who does not need emergency room, expensive emergency room services, and bring them to a more appropriate place, there's an increased opportunity for generating new income by having patients who are not being seen, who are leaving the emergency department without being seen, to come in and be seen at our institutions. So through all of these mechanisms, I think we can easily show that the return on investment is great.
4: I guess I'm next. So thanks for your question. I think um, out of our intervention, it's free once we build it and teach people that it's a sustainable um, intervention. Uh, and if the quality measures and CMS, you know, pays money for it, that's great. But we're also building um, uh, how to bill for it um, as well, because smoking cessation is probably not documented well, and it pays 20 to $40 from CMS, but you save pennies across lots of people, it adds up.
0: And for us, um, as part of the CMS bundled payment pilot, we receive a little bit of extra money uh, beyond the typical DRG payment to account for readmissions. So if we're able to cut down on the readmissions, since now we're taking that risk, um, that money is considered savings, which can be shared across the providers participating. But the other area that we look at for cost savings is that this population is a subset of our total hip and knee replacement population. Obviously, the ha- over half are private payers. So if we're able to provide this kind of consistent care at a lower cost than we were previously able to, those cost savings accrue to the system more broadly.
1: And I need to close this panel. Thank you, that was such an excellent question. But one of the things I neglected to say is part of the criteria for, for selecting these grants, was a demonstration of ROI. And so that was an important piece of this, and we're, and we're seeing that this is demonstrated and it's spreadable. So we want to thank the four of you for your wonderful work, and if we could ask all of you to please partner with these individuals from the 2014 cohort and their site leaders at your sites to help them succeed in helping the populations you serve. Thank you so much.